If you would, take your Bibles, open with me to Matthew chapter 12. And you do have notes. Again, they are for your study throughout the week, hopefully to encourage and better inform you. But we've been going through this series, Foundational Framework, because we are making a case for Jesus Christ. It is impossible to understand Him if you just start in the New Testament. We have to understand why He came and why He is here. In fact, if you wouldn't mind, if you have your notes, let's go through these foundational truths. It's been a few weeks since we've gone through them, but I think it's important. Number one, Bible, what you hold in your hand or what you claim to have holding in your hands is God's self-revelation. Think about this for a second. Let it sit in. The creator of all things wants you to know him. How many people have ever said, well, I just wish I knew what God was doing here. I just wish I knew God's will for my life. Well, I just wish I knew what the right answer was. And what's amazing is, is we have a lot of Bibles that just collect dust. This is the way to know God. And God has not left any of us ignorant. But what we find is that we often render ourselves uninformed. With the plethora of Bibles that we have in this country, that's scary. It's scary to think that we don't know our God more than we do. So the Bible, God's self-revelation. The next one, God is the eternal, always has been, always will be, does not change. He is the eternal, sovereign. He has the right to rule. He is the creator. He is the maker. And everything that he creates is good because it is consistent with his character. If something takes place that is bad, It is not of him, such as sin. Sin is not of him. We, male and female, under the heading that is known in Genesis as man, we are responsible agents. God has set down a moral standard that is very clear. In fact, it's in his word. And we are all responsible to respond to that moral standard. Why? Because it is the standard we will all be held accountable to. Anybody ever notice when it talks about the lake of fire and revelation, the dead, great and small, doesn't matter who it is, are brought to the great white throne, and there's a book that's open that is the book of life, and then there are books that are opened containing the works that each one has done. Sounds to me like people are being held to a standard. So God has set that standard. Where does sin come from? Sin originates within a person. And sin is what separates us from God. The next one, God declares one righteous by faith, alone, apart from works. My little diatribe at the beginning, I think, kind of covered that, but if you're confused, get with me. The glory of God is the centerpiece and goal of all existence. The goal is not salvation of souls, as important as that is. Giving the gospel to people, sharing Christ, massively important. But it is one stream into the main vein that leads to the goal of the fact that God gets glory. That is why everything exists. Everything will one day give Him glory. The last one, God's glory is maximally realized in the promised coming kingdom. There will be a day when the world looks as bad as it could possibly ever be, and it looks like that the Jewish people are going to be finally squashed and exterminated in their own land, and the Lord Jesus Christ will rip through the sky, and He will come back, and He will destroy His enemies, and He will establish a kingdom. And God will have supreme dominant reign from that moment forward. It is a kingdom made without hands. That is the pinnacle of all history. So how does all that matter to what we're doing? 
Here's the reason why. If you've been with us the past few weeks, you know that Matthew chapter 12 is not just a turning point in Matthew's book, and it's not just a turning point in the New Testament, and it's not just a turning point in the Bible. Matthew chapter 12 is a turning point for all of history. Why is that? God has made a covenant, an agreement, a contract with a man named Abram years and years and years and years and years and years ago. In doing so, he promised him three things. A blessing, a seed, offspring, and a land. In making those promises, there has been a lot of opposition to try to squelch those promises. Yet God's word is always held faithful. And everything that he has done has been rooted out of the promises that he previously made with Abram, who passed it on to Isaac, who passed it on to Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel of which he had 12 sons, and they eventually became a nation. And so these are not just an individual promise covenant situation. They are national promises for a people that they would be prospered by the Lord and that regardless of what happened in their history, he would bring these promises to completion. If they sin, he disciplines them. Why? Because he's a loving father and he has no problem doing that. But when they will listen and obey and respond, he blesses them immensely. And by doing so, they are to be the billboard sign to the world in order to reflect the glory of God so that all people would know. What we find in this chapter is that when Jesus had done miracles and he had manifested himself as the promised one from the Old Testament, the leaders of Israel looked at him and said, everything he does is demonic. It's satanic is what it is. Its origins are nothing but evil through and through. And being the leaders of the nation, they speak for the nation, and all of history changes. Up until this point in Matthew, Jesus has never talked about his death and resurrection. Up until this point in Matthew, the message that was proclaimed, not just by Jesus, but John the Baptist, by the twelve who were sent out all throughout Israel to go only to Israel, was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's imminent. It's going to take place at any moment here. But the condition was national repentance. Instead, the leaders stood up and spoke for the people and said, nope, not our Messiah. Now let me ask you a question, just so you don't fall asleep. From all the evidence that we've seen so far, is it pretty convincing that Jesus is the Messiah? Yeah, it seems pretty convincing so far. So how could a group of guys who are much more knowledgeable than we are who knew the Old Testament scriptures inside and out, and have Jesus physically in the flesh, demonstrating himself through the power of the Holy Spirit right in front of their eyes, come to a blasphemous conclusion about him. How is that possible? Well, they were blinded by Satan, maybe? There it is. Pride. Pride. Because when somebody has control, they don't want to lose it. Because we've seen all the child stars from the 80s get addicted to cocaine, have we not? When you get a certain point of notoriety and prestige and recognition, you don't want anybody to take it away. And you will scrape and do anything you can to keep it going. Anybody seen Madonna lately? Stop, girl, stop. She looks rough. This ain't 1983. Sit down. Quit. Please. (laughs) Something, Something Tom and I can agree on. But she doesn't want to let it go, does she? No one does. It's difficult. So Jesus, showing up on the scene, was viewed as nothing but a problem for these men. 
This wasn't the hope of Israel. This was, oh, I might lose my paycheck. It was, well, I might be thought less of, oh my gosh, he's teaching something. And honestly, if I think about it, it makes way more sense than what I was teaching people there for a while. If he's right, what's going to happen to me? Who has the phone? You want me to operate it? Just kidding. I'm just messing with you. It's good. So here's where we find ourselves. Jesus is in a back and forth with these guys. It's a heated debate. It's a massive discussion, and he's telling them such things. Wait a second. If Satan's fighting against Satan, who wins? No one. Don't you realize that I have greater power than Satan? Therefore, I can tie him up, and by me casting out demons, by me telling a man with a crippled hand to stretch it out, and it's made whole, do you not see that the Spirit of God is demonstrating its power? And here's what we know. And I, and I love what he says. In fact, let's look at it real quick. If you're in 12, let's look at this one verse because it's a, it's a critical thing that he says. Verse 28, look at that real quick. Chapter 12, 28. He says, and notice, staring the religious leaders right in the face. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, there it is then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. The authenticity of his ministry and his message is sealed by the demonstration of what the Holy Spirit is doing. And for you to deny that is to deny the Messiah coming to reign and bring in this kingdom. Man, if they just would have chose differently. But notice what Jesus is saying. What I've shown you through the power of the Spirit, that's enough. That's enough. It's enough. So we're going to start in verse 38. Then, some of the scribes and Pharisees, now real quick, if you want to write for further study right next to that, see Matthew 23, the whole chapter. It's an amazing chapter. It's a scathing chapter. Uh, Jesus really brings the beat down against these two guys because of their we love religion more than we do Jesus type of mentality. But because of their legalism is essentially is what it is. Just real quick so you know who the scribes are. The scribes are a group of men who were thoroughly, thoroughly invested in the Old Testament. They weren't just men who were teaching the Old Testament. They also served as copyists to making sure that Old Testament manuscripts were being distributed out between the synagogues. So they're working on copying the Old Testament. They're working on editing pieces of the Old Testament, sending it out, and then serving as teachers of it as well. Completely knowledgeable people. But notice, by grouping themselves with the Pharisees and getting wrapped up in this legalism, they're still missing the point of the fact that the Messiah is there. So notice, some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, now, anybody ever say something in the Scriptures and you kind of want to reach in the pages and just slap them around a little bit? I do. But look what they say. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And Jesus said, and I think this is in the Greek, hold the phone. Right? Why is this weird? Talk to me. Why is this weird? Because what? Say, we've already done so many. Been there, done that. Where were you, right? And here's one thing. Have you ever noticed when you read through the Gospels that it will say, and crowds gathered around him? And here's the one that kills me. And he warned them not to tell anybody, and they said, okay, hey, look at what he did for me, right? You know, Jesus was like, what in the world is wrong with that guy? Last time I healed him, you know, kind of thing. I don't know he said it like that. But you always see crowds, throngs of people. They were following him. He had masses, right? Remember feeding up the 5,000? That was just counting the dudes. That wasn't the women. That wasn't the children. That's a lot of people. They're all knowledgeable, completely knowledgeable. 
So notice what happens here. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, now watch these words, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. It almost sounds like that you got an itch, right? Evil and adulterous. Evil and adulterous? Why is it evil? Do we know? Why is this evil? Unbelief. And as far as the Pharisees had taken it, anti-belief. Everything we know points to the fact that you're the Messiah. We don't want to give up power. We want to keep people under bondage. Get away from us. You're obviously from the devil. Now, here's the thing. If you want an interesting study, and I've lined this out for you in your notes, you can look at it, and I encourage you to go back and reference it sometime. But let me give you some of the evidences that allow Jesus to credibly conclude this is an evil people. Here's what we have. Chapter 8, verse 3, cleansing of a leper. Chapter 8, verse 13, healing of a paralyzed man. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 15, healing Peter's mother-in-law. I don't know if Peter was very happy about that, but hey, she got got better. (laughs) Healing many who were ill and demon-possessed. Chapter 8, verse 16, calming the storm. 8, 26, casting out two demons and the Gadarenes. Chapter 8, verses 32 through 34, healing of a paralytic. Chapter 9, verse 3 and 6, resurrection of an official's daughter. Chapter 9, verse 25, healing the woman with the issue of blood. Chapter 9, verse 20, exorcism. Chapter 9, verse 33, healing of two blind men. Chapter 9, verse 29 and 30, sickness and disease brought to him, and he healed them all, chapter 9, verse 35. Is there enough evidence? There's enough. So to sit there and go, I think I missed that. Can you do it again? It seems absurd, or it seems belligerent, does it not? So notice, an evil generation. Why? Because if you don't believe what you've seen so far, how are you going to believe when it's anymore? In fact, does everybody remember the rich man Lazarus that goes on? And remember, the rich man is tormented, and there's a chasm between them, and he sees Lazarus up there. And he says, somebody just take your finger and dip it in water and just touch it to my tongue to cool it because I am dying in torment. It's all brimstone. At least send Lazarus back to let him know. And what does Abraham say to him? Do you remember? If they won't listen to the prophets, they won't listen to anybody you send back from the dead. They won't listen to resurrected people testifying of the same thing. Why? Because they've already gotten the message once before. Is that not any different from us? I just wish we knew what we should do here. I promise you the principles are already here. But we cannot afford to be ignorant of this and then be glorifying as we go out of this place in a world that is dying. It is destitute. Has anybody seen that there is no hope? I think somebody said the other day, within six days, we've had four deaths in the surrounding area from drugs. People here love heroin. Out of the four funerals that I've done so far, two of them are drug-related. That's amazing. That is astounding. People are searching for something. We know what they need, don't we? Are we knowledgeable about how to get it in their hands? I promise you this. This right here is an educator. And it will teach us to do so. Notice what he says here. He answered said to them, an evil and an adulterous generation. You might think, what in the world does fornication have to do with miracles? What in the world's going on there? The reason is, is because this is a metaphor that was often given in the Old Testament about what it was to apostatize in Israel. In fact, the, the uh, punishment for Israel's idolatry, their apostasy toward God, was that they would be cast out of the land. This is what makes their regathering in the land in 1948 such a big, big deal. Because we're finding the end of a period of judgment that God has done and allowing them to go back into the land that he promised them. 
So notice it's adulterous. Why? Because it has to do with apostasy. Notice they crave for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now watch this. He's going to tell us exactly what this means. Let the Bible interpret itself. For, there's your causal conjunction. It connects it. He's getting ready to expound. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, some interesting things about this right here. Number one, this is the first time that Jesus speaks about anything to do with the cross and resurrection in this ministry. Now that the leaders have rejected him, he now looks to Calvary. He no longer looks to establish the kingdom in lieu of national repentance from Israel. He is now looking to the cross. But notice that he only does three days, right? He'll be in the heart of the earth three days. Yes? Anybody with me? Okay, just making sure. Everybody's pretty quiet. You need coffee? We've got two places set up now about there. It's good stuff. And we have decaf. I don't recommend it. But it's not, not spirit-filled. I mean, I don't know. You do what you want. But three days. Why is that? What does that tell you about this? He's going to rise again. Notice he doesn't say four days, five days, six days. There's three days. There's a limitation on it which means that the sign is going to be the fact that he was there as long as he said he would be, and then he is not. Does everybody see that? This is also what is known in Scripture as a type and antitype. How many people are taking hermeneutics class? All right, so everybody put on your nerd caps, okay? Because we're going to talk about this a little bit, and I've got it written down for you. Types and antitypes. Here's what this is. A type is when something of a historical person, event, figure, something transpires in a literal fashion in the Old Testament. But when it transpires in that way, we find something that relates to a physical or spiritual reality in the New Testament. Let me give you an example. We are all familiar with the idea of the Exodus, correct? And for the people to be released, they were in Egypt in bondage. Yes, we looked at this. But how were they set free? How did death pass over them? Applying the blood of a lamb to the doorpost and the lintel, correct? In doing so, death passes over and the people are set free. That is a type, and the antitype is that we are all in bondage to sin. But when we apply the blood of Jesus that has been made freely available by faith, death passes over us and we are set free. Does everybody see how that works? That's a type, and I love it. <laughs> Amen. Exactly. That's a type and it's an antitype. An antitype is an answering to the type. Well, that's what this is. Jonah being swallowed by a sea monster and in his belly for three days and three nights, that is a literal event that actually happened. Now, all you science nerds out there who tell me it can't, that's fine. The Bible's not been proven wrong yet. It's been around for 1,700 years in a completed form. I'm not going to argue with this because there have been many brilliant men that have tried to argue with it, okay? Can God do that? Yes, and if Jonah can't survive being swallowed up by a sea monster, you have no business believing in the resurrection. So you've got a huge problem here. But in doing this is a literal event that took place, and that literally happened in that time. God used it to foreshadow forward an event that would take place when the Savior would be crucified, buried three days, and then be raised from the dead. Jesus is saying this is the only sign you're going to get. You are evil, you are adulterous, and you've rejected everything I've thrown your way so far. Resurrection will be my answer to you. So notice it says here, verse 41, he's going to give them some witnesses. Witnesses number one, the men of Nineveh, now that's in keeping with the whole uh, Jonah book, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the wind, that's important because that tells you what time this is going to take place. When judgment occurs, the men in the city of Nineveh are going to stand up, and they're going to be standing up at the same time that the generation that Jesus is talking to is going to stand up for judgment. And look what it says here. And will what? Condemn it. Stop for a second. The men of Nineveh who responded to Jonah's preaching are going to stand up with the generation that Jesus is physically teaching and manifesting himself to, and they are going to render a verdict of guilty 
against them. Does everybody see that? I mean, it's one thing for Jesus to judge you because he's perfect. It's another thing for people who just simply, get this, responded to the revelation that they were given. Did the men of Nineveh have less revelation than these Pharisees? Yeah, they did. They had one guy who was reluctant walking through the streets preaching. And the reason why he was reluctant, because he said, God, I knew you were merciful. I knew you'd help them. What a sour missionary, man. Nobody's supporting him at their church, right? But think about it. That's the reason why he's mad. I knew you were gracious and loving kindness. The whole city sat cloth and ashes. They even put ashes on their cattle. Laverne, you done that recently? No? Okay. Just wondering, man. Can you imagine? We want to have a city-wide situation where we're all repenting because we are all so evil and morally culpable to the divine creator of all things who sets the standards of right and wrong. They responded to that revelation. Is Jesus Christ a greater revelation than that message that came out of Jonah's mouth? Yes, that's why that generation will condemn this generation. They responded to far less and responded in such a greater way. This generation right here had so much more revealed to them. God was going above and beyond, flashing on the neon signs to get their attention, and they dismissed him. Someone is in cahoots with Satan. So notice, he will condemn it because, here's the reason why, they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, here it is, mark it, something greater, something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater. In fact, Turn back to the beginning of 12. Turn back to the beginning of chapter 12. Look at verses 5 and 6. I didn't get to preach last week, so I'm preaching for two hours today. Look at verse 5. Jesus is telling them, Have you not read it in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? Remember, we read that, but look what he says after that. But I say to you that something what? Something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than the message of Jonah. And look at this next example. Go back, verse 42. The queen of the south, this is the queen of Sheba, in the time of Solomon, will rise up with this generation at the judgment, notice, same stuff, and will condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth, to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Is the revelation of Jesus Christ in bodily form greater than the wisdom of Solomon? Yet you had people across countries that were responding to this. What time do we have? We can do this. Let's go on a trip. Everybody turn over to 1 Kings 10. Turn back in the Old Testament to 1 Kings 10. And remember, in the Old Testament, any time that you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is Yahweh, the self-existing one. That is his personal name, that he uses, that is his name of fame. It is a very intimate name to use. In fact, Jews won't even say his name. Since I'm on a personal basis with him through the Lord Jesus Christ, we can all say his name, right? So look at 1 Kings 10, chapter, or sorry, verse 1. Now when the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon concerning the name of Yahweh. Everybody see that? The Lord? Yahweh? She came to test him with difficult questions. She came as a skeptic. Right? Surely it can't be that good. Anybody ever go to an amusement park? You heard how great it was? You got there, you're like, surely it can't be that good. The next thing you know, you're all, woo, going down the slides. It is that good. Same kind of idea here. So notice, verse 2. So she came to Jerusalem with a very large, thank you. Because I actually had to listen to the pronunciation on dictionary.com. I'm like, what? Yes, retinue. With camels carrying spices. 
and very much gold and precious stones. When she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart, and Solomon answered all of her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king which he did not explain to her. When the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters and their attire, his cupbearers and his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. It exhausted her. It drained her out. Then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not... What? Uh Uh-oh. Unbelief in the Old Testament, right? I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. It's almost like Old Testament Thomas, right? It says here, Behold, the half was not told to me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. That was probably like whenever people who have kids tell you what the first eight weeks is like having a kid for the first time. And then week seven, you want to kill them because they didn't really tell you the truth? Well, look at this in a positive light. I remember that day. Confess it to the Lord. So, but this is in a positive light. Everybody was talking, 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 tell me how great it was. And when I got here, maybe it even says in the Hebrew, her mind was blown. I don't know. But she could not take it in. It was awesome. And so notice she says, Are you exceeding wisdom and prosperity? The report which I heard, verse 8. How blessed are your men. Notice that she sees the blessing. How blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Get this, guys. This was the whole idea. This testimony right here, this whole change of heart, this whole mind just exploding right now, was everything that God ever intended to happen with Israel as serving as his megaphone to the nations because of the blessing he would pour through them if they would simply obey what he had said. Living in obedience imparts visual glory unto the Lord. When you are walking with him, people can either be blown away by your fellowship experience because the Holy Spirit is radiating through you, or they will become so offended by it because it is so true they will persecute and mock you. The greatest problem we have is nobody's doing nothing on either side. And we're just kind of sitting. That's not what God called us to. He called us to be like Solomon, to obey to the point where he blesses. And it might not be material blessings. It might be the fact that you're not losing your cool when everything's going down the tubes. And radiating his glory. Why? So that people would see it and respond to the revelation that is showing through them so that it would crack open the door so you can talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. Here's what she says. Blessed be Yahweh your Elohim, who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because, notice this, Yahweh loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. Does everybody know what we just saw here in verses 6 through 9? It's a testimony. It is a testimony to someone recognizing the goodness of God in somebody's life. Now, with that in mind, turn back to Hebrews 12. I'm sorry, Matthew 12, Hebrews. (laughs) Didn't prepare that one. (laughs) Preach as the Spirit leads, brother. (laughs) Spirit's not leading me there today, I promise you. Okay. So notice verse 42, chapter 12, 42, the queen of the south, we just read about. She's going to rise up with this generation at the judgment. She's going to condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Did what we just read in verses 6 through 9 back then, was that great? Yeah, it was great. In fact, I think it would be phenomenal if we, if, if we all had a testimony like that. The way that we work with people the way that we operate, the way that the Lord is just 
God of our lives. And people being able to see that and going, man, good grief. It always seems like something that's kind of nebulous, doesn't it? Like, oh, people see something different in you. No, it's scriptural. It is absolutely scriptural. It's from walking hand in hand with the Lord saying whatever he wants is so much greater than anything else I would settle for. It has an effect. Notice what Jesus is saying. As great as that was, as amazing as it was, that she gathered up a whole group of people and they had a caravan that was traveling over in order to spend some time with Solomon. And as in awe as she was, something greater is standing in your midst. And then he gives them a, I don't really know that it's a parable, but he's given a story here. Verse 43. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, now notice he's, he's referring back to in verse 22 when he exercised the demon, right? Casting out demons. Notice what he says. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And that's interesting because the Jews in their history believed that demons could only exist in, in uh, watered places. It's very interesting you look at the Jewish mythology behind how demons operate. There's probably something to learn from there. But notice, he does not find it. Verse 44, then it says, I will return to my house. Pause, interpretive clue. What is the house? The man. Notice that, the man that they came out of. I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it occupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Now watch this. Jesus gives the interpretive conclusion. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Jesus just applied his own scripture. Does everybody see what he's pointing at here? Might be a little bit confused. He likens Israel to a man. And he says, what's happened here is that by Jesus showing up, he's cleaning house. I mean, we see that in individual exercising of demons. Did he not come into the temple and make a whip of cords and start getting people out, calling for holiness and righteousness, would instead they turn it into a casino? That's kind of what's going on there. Overturning tables? Man, can you imagine he got reported to the Better Business Bureau? Good grief. But he's overturning everything, and he's saying, how dare you profane the sacred things that lead to God? This is a place where we worship him. So Jesus has come in, and by his presence... Healing sickness, making the blind see, resurrecting the dead, casting out demons, and he is cleaning house. Remember John the Baptist's ministry? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And what does it tell us? Men from Jerusalem and Judea, that entire region, came out in the wilderness to see what was going on. They were all being baptized. They were all going down, and when they were popping up, they were confessing their sins out loud. Why? Make straight the paths for the Lord. The purpose of the baptism of repentance was so that you will believe in the one who is to come after me, of whose shoes I am not fit to tie. Everybody with me? So we've got some recollection going on here. And notice that when Jesus shows up, the house has been prepared and he's cleaning it all out. Why? So that there is nothing there to hinder them from accepting the Messiah. The problem is, is they let the house stay vacant. They did not fill it. And the only way to properly fill the house was to repent as they were commanded and accept their promised Messiah. By not doing so and leaving the house empty, their last state is going to be worse than the first. How many people have gone through some prophecy stuff in Revelation? The church is mentioned sparsely. But you have a whole lot about the destruction of Israel, do you not? Matthew chapter 24, the abomination of desolation at the three and a half year period within. He appears in the Holy of Holies and what does it say? Don't even go down to get your coat. Who's it focused on? The Jews. Run. Why? Because you'll either make it to safety or you'll be slaughtered. That's what happens in that time. Their state 
and not state of Israel, but their state as people is going to be much worse. Why? Because the truth was so blatantly given to them. And instead of letting him occupy the house, they didn't want to invite him in. That's how it's going to be with this generation. And because of this moment, this is why this is so pivotal. I don't know if I can make you understand the gravity of what's going on here. But because of this, Jesus' whole demeanor, ministry, everything changes. It turns. And it's going to take an unlikely ragtag group of people that come in that were never known about before. They're called a mystery because the Old Testament never speaks about it, and it's called the church. Look what he says moving on here. This seems kind of weird. Verse 46, while he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and his brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. His mother, which is, and his brothers who are, you sure? You sure? It's, it's not Joseph's kids from the marriage previous? Some people believe that. Are you sure? Yeah. Some people say, well, no, this is his brothers in Christ. That sounds super spiritual, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds really spiritual. It's got to be right, right? No, it's not. And the reason why those, those views have come up is because the Catholic tradition has tried for years and years and years to protect the perpetual virginity of Mary. Let me say it very clearly. That girl had sex after Jesus was born. Okay? There ain't nothing wrong with it. It was godly. She is married. They had kids. They had four boys. And they had some girls. It's okay. She's married. It's fine. It was the first kid that brought a lot of questions. But that got cleared up later, didn't it? Hey, marital sex is godly. Praise the Lord for it. These are his brothers. These are his half-brothers. It's okay. So they show up. And real quick, if you want references for that, brothers, Mark chapter 6, verse 3, and in the next chapter of Matthew, verse 55. You can look it up. It lists them out. So notice, mother and brothers were standing outside, and they were seeking to speak to him. And someone came to him, and they said, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? Now that sounds kind of rough, doesn't it? It almost sounds like he goes, what they want, right? That's not what he's saying, though. Notice, who are my mother and who are my brothers? He's using this as a teaching lesson. Why is this? Because things are starting to change. Things are starting to shift. And look what he says here. Verse 49, and stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. Now watch how he explains it. For, there's your causal conjunction, whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Those who are doing the will are those who are the family of God. Everybody see that? Now here's why this is rough. Because some of you have dealt with rebellious, unbelieving teenagers. Because some of you have a dad that just won't listen in his old age. Because some of you, like me, are desperately just trying to get your kid to recite Genesis 1-1. You know? We're, we're, we're all somewhere. If we have a love and conviction for the Lord and we sit here and we say, I see the value in this, man. It's eternal. It matters beyond what these people understand. I don't want to go to church. It's so boring. Why? We serve the God of the universe. The creator of all things. What we deserve is not held against us. So shame on us if we've made the church boring. When we worship, we're to worship in spirit and truth. I can't think of anything boring about spirit and truth. However, I can think of everything boring about people who aren't doing the will of the Father and therefore they feel like they're estranged in their relationship with Him. This is the whole reason why we do 1 John 1, nine. The whole reason why we do is because we understand something. That when those blood lines, those blood ties, don't seem to be working out, especially because of convictions, right? You're not supposed to talk about politics or religion at the dinner table, that kind of thing. When those things aren't working out, when those things don't jive together... We often want to avoid the subject and get on with it. 
Because it's truth, you can't avoid the subject. I think that's important. But number two, understand this. We are not just a body. We are not just a bride. We are not just sheep. We're also what's known as the family of God. We are the family of God adopted in with full rights, just as His Son, Jesus Christ, is because of the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is your family. We are Jesus' mother and brothers and sister, if I'm reading the text correctly. Now, application number two. Where are we in history? We are in an age known as the church age. The church age exists with the mission of discipling people. We are to go and to teach everything that Jesus commanded. We are to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And He will be with us always. Does He not promise us that? He does. Who fell asleep? You guys already zipping up your Bibles? Come on. Stick with me here. But that's what we're supposed to do. And here's the amazing thing that I think is interesting. We may sit here and say, man, I would have loved to have been one of the 12 disciples and seen Jesus. Do you understand that Jesus said, it's your benefit that I go away so that the Spirit will come? That's His words. That's His divine assessment of the situation. The Holy Spirit resides each and every person who is a believer in Christ. And as we become more convinced and convicted of truth and we submit ourselves to that truth, asking for the Spirit to make it real in our lives so that we would live for His glory, the Spirit begins to manifest Himself in the way that we live. We are then walking in the Spirit, walking by faith. And that is the way the church should. Why? Because nobody wants to walk with their kid more than arm's length away from them. Neither does the Lord. The Lord wants to walk hand in hand, side by side, and even with the whole footprints in the sand, sometimes carry us, right? Yes? No? Do we know? Yes. yes. Thank you. Calm down, Roxanne. <laughs> I want some zeal, but hold on. <laughs> but here's the thing. If that's the case, and we are 2,000 years on the other side of the cross of Calvary, yes? How much do we know that Abraham didn't know? That David didn't know? That even the apostle Paul did not know? even though he was on the other side of the cross, could look back and see it, do you realize that we are in a point in history where we are called to be obedient in order to make a difference? We try to make that difference in any other way besides making disciples like he has prescribed. We are off target and we're not doing anything of eternal worth. We, and let me say it this way. We have so much revelation that has been given to us 2,000 years on the other side of the cross and having the book of Revelation, Matthew 24, the book of Daniel, the prophets, so that we understand what is coming in the future. We are not an ignorant, unaware people. We are a very knowledgeable and responsible people. So here's my question. Are you doing what God has commanded with what God has given you? Everybody see it all comes from God? Here's God's word. Here's God's truth. Here's the opportunities. God wants to give you the Spirit. God's already saved you. God wants to sanctify you. Everybody see that God's just doing this. It doesn't stop. It doesn't ever quit. Are we taking that? Are you using it? Does it make a difference? Do you walk out these doors and you're like, yeah, life's no different. I just can't wait to watch the Packers today. I want to make sure my popcorn is popped and my chicken's ready or whatever it is. I'm not even going to Sunday school. Mm. Hit somebody's nerve. If you can't say amen, you got to say ouch, right? But you see what I'm saying? The church, this building, this place exists as an equipping center to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Is everybody working? I saw a bumper sticker the other day. You know, Jesus is coming. Look busy. And probably like me, you thought, there's a special place in hell for that person. I don't know. 
But here's what I do know. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Where are my fig leaves at, right? Just cover myself up. But, but, but seriously, think about it. It's kind of not off base if we look at the state of our churches in America today. Right? Oh, he's coming? Yeah. I've been, been talking to you for the past 35 years, right? we got to get busy now. What? Be busy? Be busy. Yes. Okay, I see what you're saying. I was like, where in the world is that coming from? Okay, gotcha. Yes, the other one is a lie. The other one is completely deceitful. The other one is thinking we can hoodwink Jesus. Anybody in here quick enough to hoodwink Jesus? Just want to make sure. Does everybody see why that's important? Your life is not just about you and raising healthy kids, making sure they go to the right schools, they have the most optimal nutrition plan. It's not what it's about. It is about, am I giving glory to God the way that God has told me to do it with all the things that God has amazingly and abundantly blessed me to get the work done. The only part that's on our hands is saying, yes, Lord. Everything else is Him. Everything else is Him. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for just seeing Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees, the scribes, the accountability. God, we are such an accountable people like that. We have so much that we know. And Father, I pray that it's not so little that we do. We have one life. And it will be over sooner than we know it. We can't waste time. We can't afford to mess around. We can't afford to get off base. I thank you, God, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ because of Christ, by whom only it's possible. So, Father, help us to look at our lives. We probably need redirection. Our minds need to be changed about some things. Maybe there's some things that we dabble in that really have no eternal value. Can we in clear conscience move forward and stay the same? Help us, God, to reassess. And instead of trying to put our hands all over it, just simply submitting ourselves to you, just simply yielding to what you call us to do. And just saying, yes, Lord. And let everything that you do in providing for us be utilized. This was something that every person in this local body would do. We would not be able to keep the doors closed. Thank you, Father, for great heavenly callings to do amazing, gracious things that you've provided. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.